We want to adopt that vision of the earth being filled with your glory and your presence, who you are, and not who we want to make you to be. We want to allow your word to speak uh, through our lives so we can uh, be pictures to the world of what you're like, and in that way to fill the earth with your glory so that everything else that's dark and dull and dim would be uh, underscored how unsatisfying it is and people can be drawn to your glory and your presence. And we want to do that in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships, in our marriages. Use your word to shape us this morning. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would turn to uh, the book of the Song of Songs. And this is our third uh, and final installment, walking through uh, some of the themes in this, in this book. If you were to ask, uh, if you were to look kind of how guys are with their cars, you're going to sometimes get the two different kind of guys. You've got the Civic guy and the Mustang guy. Um, the Civic guy, you know, he normally he's got the Civic. It's a practical car. It's a nice car. It gets him from A to B. Uh, after some time, the paint's damaged. It's chipping. It's leaking oil. And you know what? It starts costing money again, even though the payments are done. But it starts costing money again. And you know what? It's time to sell or trade. Um, it's a functional car. The, the Mustang guys, well, the Mustang guys, you got the Mustang, and there's... It's not just the car. You know, it's, there's a romance to it. They, you wax it and you garage keep it or you tarp it. You don't bring it out in the wintertime. And you, you, when, when, the, when the engine's gone, you replace the engine. Yeah, but it costs money. Yeah, but it's a Mustang. You see, there's a different mentality. It's, it's not an old car. It's a classic car. There's a romance to it. I think... Many marriages struggle because they're together on paper. Uh, they know how to get along. Uh, they know how to keep things from functioning in the marriage. They know how to make sure the marriage gets them from A to B. Uh, but maybe they get periodic oil changes. If something's really sputtering real bad, okay, let's get some counseling. But, but in the in-between time, it's just kind of just trudging along. It's just kind of functional. It's kind of just we've been together long enough to know how to get from A to B. And that's a marriage that's lacking romance. Some of us have given up on romance. Romance is a Hollywood idea. Romance is a, is a when you read a novel, and that's really nice, and maybe it's a tearjerker, and that's great and everything, but, you know, the, the, us guys feel like the women have to just come down out of the clouds a little bit. Hey, this is real life. And maybe some of us guys, we had this sort of you know, experience earlier in life, and then we go, oh, that was puppy love, that was foolish, that was naive, and this is actual, this is functional, this is practical, but there's no romance in there. But the Song of Songs celebrates romance. Uh, American Oxford Dictionary defines romance as uh, excitement and mystery. Sex, as we talked about, is a gift from God, but it's not everything, and it's not the main thing. Attraction is a gift of God, but it also is not the main thing. Both are made right and enhanced because of romance. And romance is a broader gift of God. Let's look at a couple of verses in here in Song of Songs. Um, let's let the wife speak first. 
because she does. <laughs> right there in chapter 1. Um, she says in chapter 1, verse 2, Let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. You see in verse 3 there, there she's describing what he's like, what his love is like. And then she says his oils, his, uh, his anointing oils are fragrant. The dude smells good. But then she uses that as an illustration. I think he literally had oils that actually made him smell good. The, the guy wore his cologne. But then she uses that as an illustration. It's not just that he, he smells good when he walks in. His name is like that. When I just hear the name of my man, I, it's like I smell, I'm smelling something good. There's something about his name. Now, it's not because it's a great name. Wow, his parents picked a really great name. Um, and then if your husband's name is, you know, something just real weird, it's kind of like, oh, can we get a new name? Because your name isn't like a fragrant oil to me. It's not the letters of his name. It's not how the name sounds. It's his character. His reputation precedes him. And when she hears his name, she thinks of who he is and his person and his being. And that sets the stage for the whole book. And it gets into graphic details of sexual and sensuality. But it's based on this undergirding layer of romance. He doesn't just look good. He doesn't just smell good. His name makes me think of fragrant oils. So before she goes into physical description, she describes, declares that his name is beautiful. His person is beautiful. His reputation, his character is beautiful. And wives, I think that needs to be true for you. I think that needs to be true for you in your marriage. And some of that depends on you. You know, a lot of us know the types, uh, the women who they should pine after a good man, uh, but instead they gravitate toward the bad boys or worse, the abusive types. I talked to a girl once and I said, why are you going out with this guy? I mean, this guy likes you and he's a good guy. She's like, I don't know. I know I should be with him, but... This guy just makes me feel, I don't know. And this guy's like, he was like a gangbanger. I'm like, foolish. And I don't know what that is. I think sometimes little girls, they play with Barbies, and somewhere between Barbie land and real life, they get mixed up and they go after these jerks. But his name should be a fragrant oil. God, God, the Bible doesn't exalt bad boys. There should be protection. There should be responsibility. Men should be strong. We should, we should be leaders. We shouldn't be little cowardly yellow bellies that hide in the corner and let our wives handle everything. That, that, that's not what the Bible talks about. But, but the name should reflect Christ, the biblical values, and that over all things, over all things, gray hairs, you know, frumpy clothes. He needs help with his wardrobe or something. You know, that's all backseat. To his name. And that's how she views him. And I think some of that depends on the ladies, but I think a lot of it depends on the guys, on the husbands. Now you, make, you, you make your name. <laughs> you make it, you stain it. You... What name have you established for yourself? 
When your wife thinks of you, what's the first thing that she thinks of? How you come home grumpy? Or is she thinking something else? I mean, what does she think of when she thinks of your name? Is she kind of like, <coughs> or is it, oh man, a sweet fragrance when I hear that name. This is how my man is. Guys have to till the ground and work that field and, and make sure that we're producing a name, that we're, our character is a certain way. And I got to say, those of you guys with really messed up backgrounds or up until now, up until sitting in the service, maybe on your way walking in here, you cussed her out or something. You know, you, you have this track record where you're damaging your name. It's never too late to turn it around. If you come to the cross, Christ changes your heart, changes your life. And then we begin to see a romance flourish in places where we didn't maybe expect it. Um, I want to look now how the husband speaks about romance, because sometimes we think romance, that's just a, that's a, you know, it's a feminine, it's a female thing. Um, I want to look at how the guy, this is chapter four. If you turn to chapter four, um, he's admiring his bride, he's admiring her beauty, and her neck and her cheeks. I mean, he's just, he's so in love and so uh, attracted to her. Uh, but then look at verse 9. He says, You have captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Um, and guys, I, I think. When you look at your wife, you know, she, she needs to captivate your heart, not just your eyes. He says, you, you captivate my heart, not just, not just my eyes. There, there's something about her and his relationship with her that has his heart completely captivated. And that's not a female thing. That's the, a male thing. That's the husband coming to her and saying, you captivate my heart. I'm crazy about you, not because I'm confused. I'm crazy about you, not just because of how you look. I'm crazy about you because my heart is for you. I'm in love with you. And that's a biblical thing, and that's a good thing. And that undergirds all the other physical stuff. She needs to captivate your heart. And guys, I think you need to learn how to explain to her what she does to your heart. There's this funny commercial on TV, and the guy is holding a beer, and he's describing how awesome the beer is. It comes in this can. It's a pint. I love the mouth. I love how it opens. I love... She's like, huh. And they're at a picnic. You know, they're on a date. And she's like, well, what do you, what do you think about me? And he's like, um, uh, I don't, we go out. You know, <laughs> he's, just, he's, he's just struggling for words because he doesn't know. He just thinks about beer all day. He's, saying, he, he's not struggling for words. He's not struggling for words, and he gets deep. You know, Hallmark would have wanted to hire this guy. You know, and he's like, you captivate my heart. I think we need to learn how to cultivate that captivation. That captivation, that's romance. And it's not some naive thing that we leave in the past. You know, the boy or the girl that you wanted to pass notes to in class, and then they turned you down, and you felt crushed, and then you just buried romance, and now you're just going to go functional. Well, romance is biblical. We can develop that. Romance is a gift from God, and it's to be enjoyed the way God intended it to be enjoyed. I just want to uh, briefly look at a couple ways. Look, look at what they call each other. They call each other a lot of things, um, and I like how they're not real corny. It's not like muffin, 
pumpkin patch pie, you know, I mean, whatever. I mean, if you guys, that's what you use, that's, that's cool. <laughs> but he says, beloved, darling, dove, um, beautiful images. But two of them, one thing that he calls her and one thing that she calls him struck me as, as really interesting. And the first one, he calls her in chapter 4, verse 9, you have captivated my heart, my sister, now, I don't know how many of you have a New Living Translation in your laps. I'm not knocking the translation, but here they got so scared of like incest or like, well, we don't want to communicate that sisters and brothers could get married. So they changed it to something else. Treasure, I think. But no, it's sister. But now Old Testament law prohibited sisters and brothers getting married. Well, how do we know he doesn't really mean actual sister? The same way we know he doesn't actually mean that her nose looks like a tower. There's something about the tower that makes him think it's beautiful. The tower is beautiful, so your nose is beautiful. He's not saying you know you can barely get through the door because of the size of your nose. But hey, I love you anyway. It's poetry. It's imagery. There's, it's figurative. He's saying you're like a sister to me. Um, and a commentary that I read, he described it that he he's he's trying to describe. He's using a term, the best term he could come up with to describe. The closeness and permanence of their relationship. You can get mad at your sister. You can really have a hard time arguing about something with your sister. But you don't go, you're not my sister anymore. It's permanent. You're blood relatives. And he's saying, we're that close. We're that intertwined. It's like you're my sister. She's not really his sister. He's describing the closeness and the permanence. And it's not a typo because he says it again in verse 10. He says it again in verse 12. He says it again in chapter 5, verse 1. My sister, my bride, my bride, my sister. And he described her in this way. And one thing about that term is that it's by definition non-sexual. And see, when we look at this book and we go, wow, Song of Song is tough because it's, it's all sexual. No, it's very sexual. It's not all that. He pulls away from it for a moment to describe her as something that you would never use in terms of sex, but you would use in terms of romance because it's describing closeness and permanence. It's, it's like a kinship, or we could say kinshipness. It's not actual kinship. You're not actually blood relatives, but it's, it's that same bond. It's that same tightness, that closeness, this kinshipness that develops romance and she calls him something interesting in chapter 5 if you look over the next chapter chapter 5 verse 16 he's describing her or she's describing him rather in chapter 4 we looked at he was calling her sister now he calls she calls him this is my beloved at the end of verse 16 this is my beloved and this is my friend I don't, I don't want to get, you know, sappy or cheesy or corny, but it's a pretty basic question. Is your spouse your friend? Or if you're dating somebody, is that person your friend? I think sometimes we're just looking with eyes of attraction. Or maybe we're just looking at, the, maybe we're just looking at financial compatibility, you know, or intellectual compatibility. Yeah, but are you friends? You know? If you didn't think he was so gorgeous, would you hang out just because he's that great of a guy? You know, if, if, if she wasn't that pretty to you, would you still just 
want to get to know that person just because they're just that great of a person. Friendship. I think sometimes marriages, they, they kind of, they're lacking the friendship. They've got the contract. They've got their religious commitment to not divorcing. But the friendship is lacking. I think the friendship should be there. He calls, you're my, you're my beloved and you're my friend. This is my friend. I think that's beautiful. And I think that's romance. Romance is it's a gift of God. It's not something to forget. It's not something that's naive. It's a gift of God. It's kinship. It's friendship alongside the physical. Um, I want to make one last stop in this book. That last stop is in chapter 6. And this one I kind of just put in here because I, I think it might be my favorite verse in the book. So because I'm preaching, I get to camp out on a favorite verse. Okay? Chapter 6, verse 4, we'll just look at it briefly. But I just thought maybe you guys can, I mean, it, he starts describing her. And, and this is kind of, this isn't the only place where he's kind of doing this, but I think is the best example of it. And uh, in chapter 6, verse 4, li- listen to how he describes her. You are beautiful as Tirza. That's a, a, a city, a large city. Uh, you are beautiful as Tirza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Now, I don't know. I, when I read that, it struck me as kind of like, I, I get you're my rose. You're the lily of the field. A lot of thorny flowers and thickets that I'll push through to get to the rose. You're the dove in the cleft of the rocks, he describes her. And then now you're like a city. And she's like, what? Yeah, you're like a city. You know what? You're like an army with banners. You know, I watched Spartacus last night. And you remember, not the TV version, that's pretty stinky. Um, But, but, you know, I watched Spartacus. And you know when the Roman soldiers, they formed that like checkered box on the hillside, and you you feel for Spartacus like you're dead, bro. I mean, you're dead. You're the Roman army with their shields and the helmets glistening in the sun, and their organization and the the vast army with their flags and their banners. That's what you're like, honey. <laughs> what? Now we're not sure about Tirza. We know that it was a, a city, a popular city, but Jerusalem in the Bible. A couple different times is described, Jerusalem is described as the perfection of beauty. It's described that way in Lamentations uh, 2.15, Psalm 50 verse 2. All of Psalm 122 is about the city of Jerusalem, how awesome it is. Um, You know, and I worked with uh, Tina's dad doing masonry and construction. Laying brick, mixing the mortar, and doing bricks, and fixing buildings and that are old Chicago buildings, and we have to fix them and, and put the brick facade on there, and, and so that the structure has integrity. And then we drive through the city on our way home, and I'm looking at the buildings, and I'm like, "Look at that repair! Look at that!" Then we drive by the Field Museum, and I'm like, "Look at that!" And I, one of the bricklayers was like, "I worked on that building; these huge blocks, and we had to do this." I was like, "Look at that! Look at that!" And I'm looking at it like this is this is beautiful and it's a different beauty than like like a flower. It's a, how do I say? It's almost like a man's appreciation of what beauty is. There's something awesome about a powerful city with towers and the Hancock and the Willis. I don't know. Should I give into that or not? I don't know if I should. 
these towers and structures and buildings and architecture that is beautiful and powerful. And then to take it to the next level, he says, you know, like an army with banners everywhere. Now, he uses this word awesome. And and I said, well, let me let me let me let me like check the Hebrew because did they say awesome. You know, we damage the word awesome. Like, we're like, oh, that's awesome. Or surfer dude of like, awesome. You know? Or you'll watch a, a movie of like, oh, that was awesome. Was it really awesome? No, you mean cool. Not what he meant. Right? Surfer dudes weren't controlling the language back when the song songs was written. He means aw-some. The word is related to a noun that means terror or dread. I mean, I could see maybe how it started with surfers when they would tackle these waves and get in these waves and there's, wow, that was really something else, huh? Wasn't that something else? And then this monstrosity of a wave comes and suddenly it blocks the sun and it's dark and it's curling over you and you don't know if you're going to get flipped up, turned upside down. This thing is awe-inspiring. This is almost, a, it's beautiful, it's fun, but it's also uh, almost on the verge of terrifying, but not so much because he's going to do it again. It's awesome. And when you look at a vast army, there's something beautiful about it, but there's something almost, almost intimidating, but they're on his team. It's his, it's his army. He's talking about like, you know, imagine the Israelites are camped out with their banners and it's this power and this awesome display. Like when you watch Braveheart or something and you're just like, look at these guys, they're brave and they're tackling the powers and they're marching with their banners and there's something inspiring about that to guys. The girls are like, oh, next week it's my turn and we're going to watch Jane Eyre or whatever. <laughs> but something about guys with the action flicks or the military, there, there's a sense in which, man, that's awesome to me. That's inspiring to me. You know, you see like a Harley Davidson. You're like, man, look at that. That's oh, the, the noise. Just listen. I can tell it's a Harley. I can tell it's a Harley. And the girls are like, what a waste of energy. Why are you so into there's something about guys, that there's things that attract us about city, architecture, structure, armies. And he's saying, as much as that inspires me, that, that's how I'm inspired by you. He's describing her on his terms. He did the flower, the dove, and all this stuff so she could get it on her terms. Now he's describing her and how he's captivated by her, captivated by her on his terms. And maybe some of it's lost on her. I don't think so, because she turns around and describes him in some similar ways. Like, yeah, you're... Maybe make him feel good. You're like a you're like a king. You're like a you know you're like a soldier. You're coming up on the hillside. All the maidens want to be with you, but they can't. You know. And he's like, oh, thanks. You know. So she knows how to she knows how to how to return the volley. But you're like an awesome bannered army. Majestic cities, powerful armies. You know, guys love that stuff. And then he transfers that sense of awe to her. Um, I think my wife is awesome. I do. And I don't mean like, like she's cool. I mean, I think she's awesome. You know? um, she's not just cute. She's cute. But she's awesome. And I try to think, what's an example of that? So I could just try to explain it to you guys. You know, I don't want to embarrass her. She's downstairs. But I, I remember when she carried and gave birth to Raquel, our firstborn. Maybe some of you guys can relate. I'm like, what's a diaper? What? 
you know, I'm, I'm like, wait, what goes, what's going on? Are you, you're breathing heavy. Are we supposed to go now? And then we get in the car and it's like, oh, we forgot the bag. And like, hold on, you know, you're just kind of like kind of out of your skin a little bit. And she was calm, cool, collected. This is what we need to do. Let's do this. Okay, it goes like this. Okay, what I need you to do is that. And she's the one experiencing all the pain. And I can't, I, I can't like take some of it off of her. She's experiencing all this. And it's like she's, she was like a natural. She knew what to do. Nursing Raquel and raising her and handling all of that. You know what I told her after she gave birth to Raquel and I came by and she's sort of recovering from the whole experience. And I told Tina, I said, you're my hero. You know, we, we, I have military heroes. I have sports heroes. But you surpass them all. Because you have a strength that I admire. You have, you have a wisdom that I admire. You have a sort of ferocity that's a good, holy, righteous. But you're, you're not just like a cutie. Like, you know, you, you know things. And you read Proverbs 31. This woman's all over the place. She's sowing things. And she's in the market. And she's, she knows how to be a good wife. And she exalts her husband's name. And she, she's like this awesome picture. And Proverbs 31 is painting this picture. And I say, you're You're awesome. I could think of a lot of other examples, but I didn't get permission. Uh, I think women want to be described in girly terms. You're like a rose, a dove, and that's good because he does that, and we should do that. Um, but here he uses a manly point of reference. You know, it's like, I don't know, you inspire me. Like when I walk into Soldier Field, and I feel the history, the energy of the crowd, the anticipation of seeing my favorite players, that awesome experience of the noise and the banners and the players going out on the field. And it's, and even the his, the military history of soldier field, you know, you make me feel greater than that. Walking into a room and seeing you at home and you turn around and smile, that's awesome, more awesome to me than walking on a soldier field. It's romance. And I think wives can appreciate that kind of thing because you're not liking her instead of manly things. You liking her is a manly thing. Listen, wives shouldn't have to feel like they're constantly competing with her husband's interests. Like she's competing with the game and she's competing with their fishing trip and she's competing with your shooting pool with the guys and we should let our wives know that they are our top interest aside from Christ you are my top interest and as awesome as it is to hang out with the guys and talk military or go to the game you're more awesome than that I think women need to hear that I think guys need to go there romance is a gift from God I don't think it's just for the lucky ones I don't think romance just either falls in your lap or doesn't fall in your lap. I think it's something that it takes work to enjoy, and it takes work to enjoy it the way God intended it to be enjoyed. And a lot of things will pull at you. You're disappointed with your husband, and then you go out to the supermarket, and the produce guy looks a little geeky, nerdy, but he compliments the haircut that your husband didn't even notice, and something starts pouring out of you like, you know, I tell you, a lot of marid, marital relationships, that's how the affairs begin. And then they go to the counselor, and the counselor's like, 
a produce guy? No. It's not about what the guy does. It's he was he was feeding this romance channel that was cut off in the marriage. And the same goes the other way. So romance, I think, we needs to be worked at, needs to be cultivated. I think it's a part of a biblical picture of this biblical picture of what marriage is. It's about your name. It's about captivation. It's about kinshipness. It's about friendship. It's about making her feel prized and allowing him to prize you in terms that make sense to him as well. Um, you know, if we ask ourselves that question, is romance something that just is a stage? You know, the, the honeymoon stage and everyone's telling you, I don't know why, but you know, it's like they come up to you and they're like, okay, you're, you're still in the honeymoon phase. Wait till you get to year three or wait till the seven-year itch or, you know. So why do we keep dooming ourselves with these ridiculous notions? I'll tell you why. I think it's because we have a sense that we fall in love and we fall out of it. What are you going to do? I don't think that's biblical. I think sometimes the emotions are so strong, you feel like you fell. He said, I'm captivated. That's a passive action. That's something, it came and grabbed a hold of me. I'm so captivated by you. But you read through and there's so much intention. She's approaching, she's approaching. They call each other and it's theological and it's biblical. And there's intention behind it. You develop this thing. Um, I think after the naive stage or the honeymoon years, um, your spouse shouldn't just feel like a practical partner or someone to tolerate or that you learn to deal with. I think... I think this book celebrates sex, attraction, and overall romance. But you can't understand romance. Uh, You can't understand romance if you can't understand marriage. And you can't understand marriage, ultimately, if you can't understand Christ and the church. Now, here's where the Christian view of romance is different. You cannot understand romance if you don't get marriage. And you can't get marriage if you don't get Christ in the church. Where do I get that from? I get that from Ephesians 5. We've turned there before. Paul explains marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. Marriage is an illustration of Christ in the church. Ephesians 5, 22 and following. So if you want to know what Christ in the church looks like, you've got to understand marriage. Because marriage is the picture to describe it. But the reverse is true. I don't want to lose you on this, but the the reverse is true. Marriage is a picture so we can understand what Christ is like and his relationship with the church. But the reverse is true. Christ in the church helps us understand what marriage is like. Well, Lucas, what gives you the right to reverse it? Well, Paul does in the same passage. He explains that marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, but then he says, Christ in the church is how you know how to do marriage. So he says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church does. See, he's, he's like, look at, see this? He's putting this on PowerPoint. Christ in the church. Now, your marriage is supposed to reflect this. How do you reflect it better? Learn this and import it back into your marriage. So this is how wives should behave. Husbands, love your wives. Love them how? Like Christ loved the church. 
Well, how far do you mean? Like he died for her, and Paul says it. That doesn't mean you're supposed to, you know, spear yourself, and then she just lost the husband. No, it means that if a spear was coming, you would step in front and take the spear. Whether that be a physical spear or words or something, you're there to protect and nourish and help and lead and guide and be that be that hero to her. And the model is Christ in church. So we can't get romance unless we understand marriage. And we can't understand marriage unless we understand Christ. And as I've explained, this is why couples come to me and they say, hey, would you marry us? And I find out they have nothing to do with Christ. They just want a church wedding. I say, I don't do that. Because if you don't get Christ, you don't get marriage. If you don't get marriage, you don't understand romance. What do you have? I think that's the biblical conviction. So if we can't understand romance because we can't understand marriage, and we can't understand marriage because we can't understand Christ, therefore romance should never or it should not begin at Hallmark or Hollywood. It should begin at the cross. Your model should not be Romeo and Juliet. Your model should not be mom and dad. Your model should definitely not be, you know, the tabloid spreads and all this stuff. Your model should be Christ and the church. And if that, that's the gospel, guys. Christ and the church, that's the gospel. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Marriage is purposed to illustrate the gospel. And so Paul explains that in Genesis when he says a man shall leave mother and father and become one flesh with his wife. He said that is profound. That is profound. But I'm telling you, it refers to Christ in the church. Adam and Eve becoming one refers to Christ in the church. Yes, because even then God saw what was happening and saw what was coming. And he's saying, I'm developing a model and illustration to help people forever understand how much I love them. And that's the picture of marriage. And that's how we feed romance, by centering it on the gospel. You wake up some mornings and she doesn't look like she looked last year. He walks in from work and he's not sounding the same poetic language that he flowered you up with earlier on in the marriage. It's hard to love that person now, but you don't love them because they have flowery language. You love them because Christ and the church. It's the self-sacrificial, I'm not waiting for the other one to make the first move. I'm not waiting for the other one to become a lovely person because Christ didn't wait for me to become a lovely person. And so love, rather than based on the other person, love is based on Christ. And that infuses your marriage in a way that no counseling seminar, no marriage conference series, no movie, no romance novel could ever buttress your marriage. And so we have to start with the gospel. Um, Jesus teaches us to love deeply. And romance, I think, is a gift of God to be enjoyed um, the way God intended it to be enjoyed. And that's with the cross at the center. What does communion have anything to do with a series on marriage or a sermon on marriage? Everything. Everything, that broken body, that spilled blood, that is God's demonstration of love to the church. 
We model that. Sometimes you feel like a broken husband or you feel like a broken spouse and you're, you're spilling out everything to, to, to make this relationship work. And, and you feel like maybe it's not being reciprocated right now. Christ is saying, let me set the model. Follow my lead and do romance this way. Not the Hollywood way, not the Hallmark way. I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward as well as the ushers so we can take communion together.